Exodus 12, verses 1, and I'm going to read through verse 36 instead of verse 32. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 36. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it, dear friends. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth month of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. For you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go. And select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel 
And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Truly, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God would give up his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And so now, Abba, Father, as hungry children of yours, we come asking for your Spirit's work by your word, standing on your promise that you will graciously give us what we ask for the nourishment and for the joy of our souls and for the glory of your own great name, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Whenever things slow down, it's bound to get our attention. Writers know this. Literary novelists know this. Movie directors know this. The pace of a film will clip along, and sometimes the film will even show a montage in order to get through the narrative a little more quickly so that we can progress to the crucial portions. But whenever the storyline begins to slow down and pause... And we begin to zero in on the dialogue or even the speech of the characters. That's when we know something of significance is taking place. Oftentimes, whatever the background music score was playing, that music will cease. And the din of surrounding noise of conversation will be muted out. And we are turned in and tuned in to the bare, simple, and poignant moment of what is happening and transpiring. Something like that is happening here in Exodus chapter 12. You see, from chapter 1 of Exodus until now, the messages and the passages of Exodus really have clipped along at quite a pace. Even the account of the first nine plagues, which we've looked at in recent weeks, although it covers four chapters, even that account is highly condensed. If you stop and think about it, each plague 
often lasted several days, and their implications, the, the ramifications of those plagues, stretched well beyond that. The effects of cattle dying or, or frogs or gnat infestation would have gone on for several weeks. So the first nine plagues occur over weeks and weeks, even months, perhaps up to a quarter of a year. But the narrative keeps us moving from one to the next to the next in, in, in rapid fire, racing right along until we come to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And here... It's as though Moses, as he writes these words, eases us into slow motion. Look at the attention that this tenth plague is given. In chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, God tells Moses what's about to happen, last chapter. And then in chapter 11, verses 4 through 10, Moses concludes his interview with Pharaoh. And he then tells Pharaoh what's about to happen. He declares it preemptively. Then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, Moses then tells the Israelites what's about to happen and what they should do about it. And then verses 14 through 20 here in chapter 12, how they should go about remembering what is about to happen, how to commemorate it in future years. And then chapter 12, verses 21 to 43, the event itself takes place. And then in the second half of chapter 12, the, and the, on into the first half of chapter 13, we're back to further instructions on how to remember what has happened. Perpetual instructions on how to keep the Passover as part of the yearly Jewish festal calendar. So suddenly, do you see, everything is slowing down, slowing right down. The whole story is told in advance to Moses, and then it's retold in advance to the Israelites, and then it's told in real time as it's actually happening. And then it's retold again, looking back, over and over and over again, this repetition of the significance and the occurrence and the ramifications of the Passover. Now, we read only a portion of chapter 12 this morning, but we're actually going to be thinking about the message of chapters 11 through the middle of chapter 13, because they form a single large unit within the storyline of the book of Exodus. Because of these textual clues and the significance and the weightiness uh, that is given to this section of Scripture, we know that this is one of those, those turning points, one of those pivot points in the story of redemption. This is not a section of Holy Scripture that we want to just hurry on past. When I was uh, traveling a number of years ago, my college friends and I, through Greece and Italy, and many years ago we saw beautiful, all kinds of beautiful and interesting sights. But as you might imagine, any of you who've traveled abroad and you've done some of these historical tours of, you know, tracing out the footsteps of the Apostle Paul and, and seeing all these ancient ruins in Greece or Egypt or wherever you might go, Turkey, after a while, one ancient building and one picturesque landscape just starts to blend one into another. Everything seems to be the same, and the initial sensation of being filled with awe and wonder, it, it seems to fade, and things begin, sadly, to our own shame, start to feel rather ho-hum. I had a similar sensation when I traveled with my family out west a number of years ago. And initially, the great desert plains and the red cliffs and the massive rock formations were incredible. But then, after 14 days of seeing red rocks, after red rock, after red rock, the sense of wonder starts to begin to taper a little bit. But then, we came upon the Roman Colosseum, or St. Peter's Basilica, or the Grand Canyon, or Zion National Park. And suddenly, upon encountering that majesty and that grandeur, all that awestruck wonder came flooding back again. And we simply stood there 
for what felt like hours, staring at it, studying it from every angle, drinking it all in and savoring every drop of the experience. This is one of those moments, as sobering as it is wondrous. As one man says, in this passage, we've come to one of the great wonders of Scripture. And just like with one of the wonders of the world, you don't simply fly past. You must stop and linger and drink it in. Indeed, the Passover becomes the template. It becomes the reference point or the paradigm or the metaphor for salvation, for, the, for God's salvation for his people. It serves as a metaphor for all the rest of the pages of Scripture, this Exodus event. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to think of it along three simple themes. A word of promise and grace, a word of judgment and warning, and then thirdly, a picture of Calvary. A word of promise and grace a word of judgment and warning, and then a picture of Calvary. So first, let's think about a word of promise and grace. Look right at the heart of the section, chapter 12, verses 21 to 42, some of which we did not read a moment ago. But the instructions that are given to Moses himself in the first 13 verses of this chapter, they're now repeated in summary as Moses tells them to the elders of Israel. Verse 21, the Israelites are to take a lamb. Verse 5 earlier fills in some of those details for us. It is to be an unblemished lamb, either from the goats or the sheep, and they are to slaughter it. The blood of the lamb would be collected, and it is to be dabbed upon the doorpost and on the lintels of each Israelite house using hyssop leaves or branches, verse 22. Verse 8 through 11 tells us that a meal using the roasted meat of the Passover lamb was to be eaten in a very particular manner, with belt fastened and sandals on and staff, walking staff in hand. This is the garb, the, the dress, the get-up of a group of people, you see, who are ready to leave at a moment's notice. They were to eat in haste, Scripture says. The message is obvious. God is saying to them, get ready. You're about to leave. And all that night, no one was allowed outside their own home because, verse 23, the Lord was about to pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. The Lord himself was coming to judge in the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Now, isn't it interesting, as one commentator helpfully points out, the text implies that God would do the same for Israel too, unless they complied with his instructions. Verse 23 again, Put the blood on your doorpost and lintels. I am passing through to destroy, and when I see the blood on the doorpost and lintels, I will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You see, Israel is liable, in one sense, to the judgment of God equally, right along with wicked Egypt. Israel did sin, didn't she? In fact, as Dr. Phil Riken points out, it is evident that the hearts of Israel had become corrupt and idolatrous during their 400 years of captivity. After all, when they were in the wilderness and they ceased to worship God aright, to whom did their hearts turn and wander? Scripture tells us they turned to the gods of Egypt, golden calves and such. Joshua later must rebuke them and tell them to put away their false god devotion. God... The perfect judge of holiness and purity would sweep through and smite all the firstborn, and he would be perfectly just in doing so. Now, we instinctively recoil at such a notion, but when we do that, 
I wonder how much we have downplayed the sense of our own sinfulness and downplayed our sense of God's holiness and righteous wrath. God's judgment is never wrong. It is never cruel. It is always just, and it is always justified. But, but, the great difference do you see? God did not promise to spare Israel because they were sufficiently religious or sufficiently moral in contrast to their pagan slave masters. No, God promised to spare them only if the blood of the Lamb marked their houses. Only those under the Lamb's blood would not face the wrath of God. This was the only ground of their hope, that everyone take refuge under the blood of the Passover Lamb. And so, that very night, as judgment at last fell, every house in the land is afflicted except the houses of the Hebrews. And as a great cry of wailing and mourning and anguish rises up throughout the land, Pharaoh finally summons Moses and Aaron, verse 31, up. Notice that he can't even find the energy as he's so saddled with grief. He can't even construct a half-hearted sentence. Up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, which he tried to prevent them from doing just a, just a chapter ago. Take your herds, as you have said. Be gone. And bless me also. Similarly, the regular citizens of Egypt were desperate to be rid of the Hebrews at last. Verses 33 to 36. Notice that when the Israelites asked for spoils, the Egyptians gave them silver and gold jewelry, plundering the Egyptians. As one man says, as the old saying goes, to the victor belong the spoils. These are the spoils of a war that Israel did not fight. The Lord fought for them, and his victory is complete. God's judgment on Egypt is total. Their gods are humiliated. Pharaoh is reduced to begging And Israel leaves the land enriched with the treasure of her former captors. And now they're free at last and all because of the Lamb's blood. The Lamb's blood was the ground of their liberty, close quote. The message almost preaches itself. What a beautiful picture of the gospel this is. The Passover pointed forward to a great Passover yet to come when it was no mere firstborn child of an earthly king that perished. But God's only begotten son himself was crushed by the holy justice of God. He became the sacrificial lamb that took the place of his sinful people. Quite simply, the Passover lamb here points us to the person and work of Jesus. The Passover is a picture, it is a type, it is a foretelling, a portrayal of the grace of Christ. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for us. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, you remember his exclamation? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. What is the great difference marking out Christians from non-Christians when they stand before the wrath and fury of divine justice, burning, burning as it does against our sin? If God were to say, you sinned against me, why should I not destroy you? What would we say? 
Right? Boys and girls, think about this. If you were to meet God today and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I not send you away into judgment and condemnation and destruction? What would you point to? Would you, would you point to regular church attendance? Would you point to all the Bible verses that you memorized? Would you point to all the good catechism questions that you've learned and committed to memory? Will these things turn away the wrath of God? I love, love the hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done, composed by the great Scottish pastor Horatius Bonner. Many of you probably know these words. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear the awful load. But thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. This is our only argument, that we have come to hide under the blood of the Lamb. This is our only argument. Like Israel in Egypt painting blood on their doorpost, we must take the blood of Christ offered at Calvary for sinners. Here is the gospel. All there is to do, all, all, all that we may do, is hide beneath the shed blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done it all. He has done it all. And he speaks a word of promise and a word of grace, both at Goshen and at Golgotha. This sacrifice of blood is a refuge from the wrath of God toward our sin. Are you living today under the blood of the Lamb? Because there is no hope anywhere else. So that's the first thing that we need to see here. A word of promise and grace. But then secondly, a word of judgment and warning. The, the whole section, of course, begins back in chapter 11 with the interchange between Moses and Pharaoh at the end of the ninth plague. But in the first three verses of chapter 11, it's almost like a, it's almost like a flashback in a movie. So verses 1 to 3 are a, a little aside to the reader, showing us that God has already informed Moses that the tenth plague would be the decisive blow, that Israel would be free and they would plunder the Egyptians. So then, verses 4 to 10, there in chapter 11, the conversation resumes. Moses reports God's words to the king. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Verses 4 and 5. But then look at verse 7. We took a look at this a bit last week. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So Egypt will be spared, excuse me, Egypt will be judged, and Israel will be spared. Now, why did God tell Moses all of this in advance? Well, it was a warning, of course, and a warning, if chapter 11, verse 10 is any measure, it is a warning that Pharaoh utterly rejected, and so judgment fell upon him. But as one man insightfully notes, it wasn't that way with everyone in Egypt. Take a look at chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. Here we are after the death of the firstborn. Right? Pharaoh has refused the warning. Judgment has now come. The Hebrews have been spared, hiding beneath the blood of the Lamb, and they are at last free. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And verse 38, note this. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock. A mixed multitude also were with them. 
Although Pharaoh didn't listen to the warnings of God, some people did. They saw his mighty works in judging Egypt, and they saw his mighty works in saving Israel, and they saw the reality of the previous nine plagues, and apparently, as dreadful as they were, they finally realized this God of the Hebrews is serious, and he is to be reckoned with. While most of Egypt could not wait, could not wait to be rid of the Hebrews, it seems that at least some of them recognize that Israel's God is the true God, and the idols of Egypt are dumb, empty things. Some, it seems, have realized that safety and hope can only be found among the people of God, under the rule of God, and so they choose to depart their homeland with Israel rather than stay in Egypt under God's curse. Some people listened to the warning. They heard or observed the warning of judgment. They recognized the reality and the seriousness of this God's wrath and power, and they fled for refuge to the right place and the right people. And frankly, this is the message of the church today, my friends. There is gospel mercy for sinners in the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, judgment is coming. So will we heed the warning and will we flee the wrath to come? As some did in this passage, as some of the Egyptians did in days of old, will we find refuge with Israel and with the Israel of God, the church? Will we find it under the lordship of Almighty God? Truly. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised for wonders he has done. His right hand and holy arm have won for him the victory, defeating pathetic and impotent gods of Egypt. He is a great and terrible king who saves his people with the blood of a lamb. Do we dare resist him? Do we dare resist him? Oh, friends, this is our message before all the world. Let us heed the word of warning and let us take serious this word of coming judgment as the church bears forth this message, yes, of hope, but also a message of warning before the watching world. And we exhort and plead and entreat all who will listen, find our only hope under the Lamb's blood. That's the second thing. A word of promise and grace, a word of judgment and warning, and then finally and briefly, a picture of Calvary. In chapter 12, verses 14 to 28, and then again in chapter 12, verse 43, and then again in chapter 13, verse 6, God institutes the festivals of Passover and unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, of course, because the Israelites, according to verse 39, they had no time for their bread to be leavened before they needed to flee. And so they roasted the meat of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and the unleavened bread became together the emblems, a perpetual memorial used annually as a feast in order for Israel to remember God's redeeming grace. It was this very same meal that Jesus took the night in which he was betrayed. He took some of the unleavened bread, and he took one of the cups of wine, and showed his disciples how it all points to him, that its ultimate significance was in his person and his work. He was about to accomplish in just a very few hours on the cross. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It is not inaccurate in one way to describe the Lord's Supper as the greater and better Passover feast. The Supper speaks to us clearly about God's final redemption from the deepest slavery of them all, from the slavery of sin, by means of the blood of the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a happy providence of God that we get to preach this text and study this text on a Lord's Supper Sunday. We had not initially planned for it to be this way, but in God's kindness, this is how the schedule lined up. 
I love what one man says here, comparing the two, the two meals. Both meals, he says, the Passover in the Old Covenant, the Lord's Supper in the New, teach the same thing. Their message is the same. Both were given to teach the people of God then and now that we must never, never stray from the blood of the Lamb. God builds into the rhythm of his people's lives in Moses' day and in our day a simple meal to ensure that we come back again and again to the Lamb who was slain. There are, these are God's ordained means, his mechanisms, ensuring that we never stray from Golgotha. Passover with its yearly observance, the Lord's Supper with much more glorious frequency to teach and remind us that the Christian faith flourishes like some rare flower only on the slopes of the hillside of Calvary. Jesus gave us the sacraments of baptism and the supper to be means of grace to our souls, to teach us what it really means to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what the sacraments do. Create within us the disposition of utter dependence on Calvary and on the Lamb's blood. Close quote. Friends, let us take care how we use the sacraments to our soul's advantage. Let us exploit them in the best sense of that word. Let us draw from them the spiritual riches that they were intended to give, as if, as if drawing from a well. And you come with your bucket, and you put the bucket down, and you come up with a bucket of water, and you use it, and you put the bucket in over and over and over again, and you draw more and more water, seeking to drain that well dry, but knowing that you never can. The riches of God's means of grace are inexhaustible. That well will never run dry. Do we take every measure in God's providence? Do we take every measure to ensure that we do not miss the Lord's Supper? Do we consider our own vows of discipleship and church membership when we see a baptism? Or is it a spectacle? When we baptize an infant, is it something that's simply sentimental and cute? Or do we regard it as a solemn moment when we are reminded of our duty to live for Christ and we are shown again in the washing of water of what Jesus' blood has provided for our own souls? We sit under the preaching of the word and we are instructed in the gospel of grace. We partake in these sacraments, which is just the same promise and the same word and the same grace made visible, made tangible. The same grace that we proclaim from the Bible, but such now that we can touch and taste and see them and feel them and smell them. Do we come to them, regard them, long for them, depend on them, treat them as a feast for the hungry and drink for the thirsty so that we might be drawn again to the grace of Christ, and give ourselves over to his worship and ever be lost in wonder, love, and praise. The Passover is a picture of Calvary. And then, as now, Old Testament and New Testament, it serves to remind God's people that we must never stray from Calvary, but must ever live the Christian life in light of Christ crucified, depending on him, clinging to him, drinking him in, feasting on him, upon him by faith, using all the means which God has ordained and provided to strengthen and nourish our souls. Praise God for the message to us in Exodus 11 and 12 and 13. Praise God for that Passover of old, and praise God for Christ, our Passover lamb. May the Lord bless his word to us today. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do pray giving thanks for the lamb of God who takes sin away by giving his life, by shedding his blood. Together now we run for refuge to hide beneath his sacrifice, asking that his righteousness would cover all the stains of our rebellion 
and that we may know great deliverance like Israel of old from the ultimate bondage of our sin. We may know that to the glory and praise of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we do ask these things. Amen.